Please open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy. Chapter 3. It's such a privilege for me to be here with you uh, this afternoon. It really is. And I, I pray that the Lord will will help us, will help you. How many of you here are missionaries? Raise your hand. Keep them up, I want to see. How many of you here are pastors who are concerned about missions? All right. First Timothy 3, verse 14. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you today in the name of your Son, You know, O Lord, you know. And our confidence is in that thing that you know, every need that's here. Lord, please help us. And help us in a way that we will know that we have been helped. You are a great God. And therefore, Lord, we expect great things from you. Not by our virtue or our merit, but by your promises and your faithfulness. You lift our head. You are our buckler and our shield. There is nothing too difficult for you. Rest upon us. Strengthen us. Illumine our minds. Give us, Lord, clarity. Oh, I praise you. I worship you. There is none like you, O God, in the heavens or the earth or under the earth. That your name be hallowed. That your kingdom come. Your will be done. And we will rejoice in it. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm a a bit under the weather, so you'll have to 
Bear with me. Before we look at our text, some things came to mind this morning that I want to bring up to you. Simple things. I travel a great deal. So many things are said, and yet oftentimes the most simple things are looked over. And because of that, sometimes the world of missions doesn't walk in the way that it should. And so I want to just look at a few simple things. I want to bring some things to mind that maybe would encourage you to give yourself to study in this matter. First question, what is a missionary? What is a missionary? I want you to think about that because not many people are thinking about it. We use the term. We use the term. But how do we define it? You know, if I want to know what a pastor is and what a pastor's duties should be, I go to the scriptures. I can do a word study, hopefully in context, of the word pastor, of the times someone is acting as a pastor. I can look at the commands regarding what it means to pastor. There's so much missionary. I think this is the reason why Today, when someone calls themselves a missionary, it could mean they're a church planter, or they're digging a well, or they're dressing up in a clown suit and handing children candy. Honestly, because we have yet to define the term missionary. The word missionary was first used, historians think, by the Jesuits in the 16th century when they went out to proselytize in the name of Roman Catholicism. It comes, it's derived from a Latin verb, miteri which means to send, to send. And if you want to translate the Greek, apostello, to Latin, you would use the word miteri. And then you know, of course, apostello is related to a word apostolos or apostle. And so when you're saying missionary, you're actually saying apostle. Now, are there apostles today, and are there, is a missionary and apostle the same thing? No, they're not. I firmly believe that Ephesians 2.20 is telling us that there were some apostles, and they were used by God to be the foundation, their teaching, to be the foundation of the church, because they were inspired. Those promises in John 14 and John 16 were with regard to those men through whom revelation would come to us, inspired revelation. So no, there are no apostles today in that sense. But there is a sense in which there are sent ones. And I want to read something to you that I wrote a couple of years ago. Although the term missionary is not found in our English translations of the Scripture, it does adequately communicate the idea that is prevalent throughout the Scripture of one who has been sent by God to carry out a work on God's behalf. Let me give you some examples. God sent Moses, and the word sent is used. God sent Moses to Pharaoh in order to bring his people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. God asked the prophet Isaiah, whom shall I send and who will go for us? To which he responded, here am I, send me. Now throughout the history of the Old Testament, God sent prophets to the people of Israel again and again, but they would not listen. In the Gospels, Jesus sent out the 12, and then Jesus sent out the 70, 
And then at the very end of his earthly ministry, he commissioned his disciples, and he said it this way, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now we get to the book of Acts. The church in Antioch set apart and sent away Paul and Barnabas for their evangelistic and church planting work among the Gentiles to which the Lord had called them. Now what is the difference between an apostle and a missionary, one that has been sent out? Well, it's this. First of all, the apostles, they were sent out by the authority of Jesus Christ himself. They were in his presence, and he sent them out. Even in the case of the apostle Paul, he met Paul on the road to Damascus, and he commissioned Paul there. So those apostles were sent out by the authority of Christ. And in the case of the apostle Paul, the resurrected, exalted Christ sent him to the field. Now, with regard to the missionary, he's sent out under the authority of a biblical local church. Now, I really want to emphasize this. Mission agencies have no power to do this. It is the work of the local church. Now, also, the apostles, they received revelation directly from Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. The missionary takes that revelation once and for all handed down to the saints without adding to it, without taking from it, takes that revelation and communicates it to the world. That's the difference. Now, I want us to look at something else. What is the relationship? What is the relationship between the missionary and the local church? I want you pastors to really, really think about this because I believe that it's not just an option or a suggestion. I believe it's one of the things it means to be a pastor. The biblical church that has biblical elders will not only be doing the work of evangelism. It will not only be expounding the scriptures and counseling and discipling, but biblical elders in a biblical church from the very beginning are also praying that God would bring to them faithful men and that they would be able to invest their lives in those faithful men until those faithful men become elder qualified themselves, either to stay and work in that local church or to be sent out in to another area. Now, I want you to go for just a moment to, we're going to jump around for just a moment to 2 Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 2. Paul tells Timothy, These things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. When I first went to Peru with very little training and did so many things that were wrong, I, I did. When I went to Peru, every person that was converted through the street preaching that I did and the outdoor witnessing and the handing out tracts and everything else I did, I determined based on this text that I would disciple every person who was converted under my ministry. And I did. If it was a girl, then there was a mature woman there. But I mean, I was, I was going to fulfill this. But it was later on that I discovered that that's not real, what this text is speaking about. 
we should disciple. We should do one-on-one discipleship. I am so for that, and it's such a blessing to the church and pastors when people are doing that. But what you need to see is this. This, I believe, is a direct admonition to pastors that in the work of an elder, it is not just evangelizing, not just preaching, not just uh, pastoring the congregation, but it is also investing our lives in men. We work with them. We teach them until they become elder qualified and can either become elders in that church or be sent out somewhere else. I believe this is a part of the pastoral ministry, and I believe it is extremely important. I believe that Bible institutes and seminaries and things like that can be a great blessing in that process, but nothing, nothing replaces the local church and elders in the training of men to be sent out. Nothing, brothers, nothing. Now, when I say elder qualified, just run back to 1 Timothy 3. This is something else I want you to see. In verses 1 through 7, and we don't have time to read this, do you see what's there? Those are the qualifications of an elder. They are not options. They are not something to be laughed about. We're not to look at them and say, well, you know, everybody fails and falls in certain areas. No. Paul doesn't leave us any room for that. What is he telling us? If you're going to be an elder... This is what you must look like. And if you don't look like this, you're not an elder. As a matter of fact, the two ways in which you find out you're an elder are two of the ways is this. First of all, you desire it with all your heart. But that's not enough. You must qualify. Now, many people look at this and they say, well, Brother Paul, this is referring to elders and deacons later on. Well, yes and no. I've heard people say, well, I'm an evangelist. I don't have to have these qualifications. Or I'm a missionary. I don't have to have these qualifications. But what you've got to see is what Paul is describing here is a mature Christian. So in order to be an elder, in order to be a deacon, in order to be an evangelist, and especially in order to be a missionary, you must have these qualifications. And if you do not, you should not be on the mission field. Do you see that? And that's one of the greatest greatest problems today, putting people, sincere people, good people, kind people, loving people on the mission field when they do not qualify to be there. And that is why missions around the world, I'll tell you, brothers, I love missions. I've dedicated my life to missions, but it's a mess. And it's a mess because we're not following the simple things of Scripture. Now, look, look what else, something else I want to point out here. Look in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. Look in verse 22. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share in responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. I wish, I pray, I really do, often, Lord, increase my fear of you. I pray that for the people of God. I, I was just in just beautiful work in, in Croatia and Czech just last week. Just, oh, I've, I've got a Croatian tie on. Um, 
It was beautiful, but I, I met because of the, the, we opened it up to everybody, anybody who wanted to come. It was such a blessing. So many people coming to me as missionaries and young people and stuff that not with TMAI, but with other groups. They were sincere, beautiful, young people. Everything I've taught so far was totally foreign to them. They had no pastor over them. No one sent them out. They weren't qualified. They were sincere and I love them and appreciate them for it. I'm angry with their pastors. Their pastors should have known better. That's why we got all kinds of, you know, 20-year-old guys with backpacks and tevas on running around China, handing out tracts and writing all kinds of magnificent newsletters, but they don't have a clue of what they're really supposed to be doing. What are they supposed to be doing? Well... Planting churches. And, and how can you plant a church? L- listen to me. If someone, cannot, if someone does not qualify, qualify to be an elder in my church, the church I attend, the elders are not going to lay their hands on them to send them to the foreign field. Because if they'll do damage in our church, they'll do twice as much damage there. Also, my elders know this. They know that when they lay their hands on someone, when they give their blessing, even, even for a young person or something, to go on a mission trip, that, that in some way they will share in their sin and be responsible for the error that they preach on the mission field. Do you see that? I want you to see this. We're sitting here, many of you have many degrees and all sorts of things, but I'm telling you, very few people are doing this. Very few people. So I'm sitting there, you can talk about the Christology of John Owen all day long, but my question is, are you doing the basics? And the basics is a biblical local church with biblical elders that's not only taking care of the congregation, but training up men until they're elder qualified, sending them out, laying their hands on them with fear and trembling, knowing they're responsible for them, must hold them accountable in everything. Do you see that? This is what missions is supposed to be. Now, I want to go on. How do you plan a church? Now, what I'm going to say will make a lot of book publishers very, very angry because it's going to empty the shelves of many Christian bookstores in the mission section. How do you plan a church? All right. If you can get a pencil and a piece of paper, this is going to be complex. Maybe you need your Greek New Testament, (laughs) Septuagint, Hebrew, bring it all out. This is going to be difficult. How do you plant a church? You plant a church the same way you pastor one. There's no crazy strategy. There's no gimmick. You know, it's it's getting close to summer. So every time you turn on television, there's an advertisement about how you can lose weight. Take a pill. Do this. This one exercise. This program. All this stuff. None of it works. It's the same way for all the mission strategies. How do you plant a church the same way you pastor one? It's just really hard. You go out to a people and what do you do? You do the work of an evangelist. And when people are converted, what do you do? You pastor them, which means you preach the word of God to them. You counsel them with the word of God. You pray for them. You intercede. That's how you plant a church. 
Why do you plant a church? Why? This is a trick question. Why do you plant a church? Well, we know that is the reason for missions. When I'm looking at some, one of the reasons why I love TMAI so much and and everything they're doing, because when I look at missions, I'm asking only one question. Don't talk to me about baptisms. Don't talk to me about raised hands. Don't talk to me about all that. Talk to me about biblical, local churches being formed and nurtured and grown and multiplied. That's all I want to know. So that's why you plan a church. But now let me throw this at you. Whenever I'm with a group of missionaries, I'll always ask them, and I mean good people, good people. I will always ask them, why are you planting that church? And they'll almost always say, well, I'm planning this church because Well, in planning this church, then I want this church to kind of be a center hub, and then I want to plant other churches and and start something of a church planting movement in the area. And I always look at them and I say, you are dead wrong, and you're going down an extremely dangerous path. And they look at me with shock. Why are you saying that? Let me share with you why you why you plant a church. You plant a church because you love the people in that church. Now, let me finish. If you plant a church so that that church becomes a hub and and through that church you plant other churches and you have this big vision, here's what you've got to understand. And those of you who have been pastors will know exactly what I'm talking about. When you plant that church, most of the people who come are not going to be an asset to your vision they're going to be they're going to be broken people hurting and you know what they're going to slow you down they're going to be like weights on your feet and you know what in time you're going to be embittered against them because you want to move so fast, you want to plant churches, you want to do this, and you've got to go and counsel this person the hundredth time with regard to the same sin. Do you see what I'm getting at? We need to be really careful. Make sure you never use God's people in order to fulfill some vision you think God gave you. Don't ever do that on the mission field. Never. But I do believe that if... You truly have the heart of a pastor and you truly love the people that in time and God's providence that other churches will spring forth from it. But pastors, again, a warning. Let me, let me tell you, you know, you can rely upon good schools like this one. You can, the, 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 like TMAI and others and, and masters and, and you can rely on that. But, but you can't allow them to do the work. It's not their work to do. It's the work of the local church to train men. And you call on their assistance. You can send your guys there and things. But it is still you who has to ensure that these men have the qualities and the characteristics of an elder and that they can be sent out. This is the work of the local church and the pastor. And not the greatest seminary in the world can be a substitute for that. Do you see that? This is wonderful. 
Because what? I'm magnifying your ministry as a pastor. If you ask my pastor, someone asked him the other day, do you believe that the local church is, uh, is primarily the, uh, no, do you believe missions is primarily the work of the local church? He said, no. I believe it's exclusively the work of the local church. <laughs> now, of course, you know, heart cry is actually in that church and we're under those elders. But you see the point that he's trying to make. This is about churches planting churches. That's missions. Churches planting churches. That's what it's about. So why do you plant a church? That's why. I don't even know if I'm going to get to my sermon. (laughs) Now, another thing, and this is so important. What is the source of our strength? What are our tools? What are the weapons of our warfare? What are they? That's a really important question. How you answer it will determine everything about your life and ministry. Prayer and the Word of God. Prayer and the Word of God. Now, I'm being very Greek here. I'm putting prayer first. You know, for the most part, in the Greek language, if it comes first, being given priority. Why am I doing that? Well, first of all, it's because when I hear word and prayer, it's usually tag a little bit of prayer on the end of a lot of word. And, And that's no good. Another reason why I'm doing it is because the apostles did it. I want you to look for just a second. Let's go there. Oh, my goodness. I'm in a ministry that's that's run by John MacArthur, and I'm doing a topical sermon. I am dead. (laughs) People are saying, we told you you should have never let that guy in here. Look, Look at the book of Acts. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. In no way diminishing the word, but look what he says, prayer and the ministry of the word. Preaching is more than you just getting the text right. It's not less than you getting the text right, but it's more It's more than just you being smart. It's more than you just being eloquent. There is something beyond the human in preaching. There is something far beyond the human in all ministry. It is the work of God. And although God in his providence has decreed many things, he has given us prayer. And we have not because we ask not. We're so strong We're too strong. If we were only weaker, more needy, we would see more prayer and more of the power of God. Look, I'll prove it to you. Look in Mark chapter 1. 
Verse 35, in the, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was there praying. This is our Lord. This is God incarnate. I'm sure he went till past midnight healing. Virtue was going out of him. He was tired. And yet, long before daybreak, as was his custom, he got up and he prayed. Look at that. He prayed. Go to Luke. Let's just run over there real quick. If I bit the bullet, I might as well go all the way. <laughs> Luke chapter 5, look at verse 16. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Okay. You're all about exegeting the text, applying it properly. Apply that to our lives. When was the last time you slipped away to pray, to tarry, the night watch? You can't sleep at night and the Lord prods you. Tarrying. This is what, this is our Lord. He's our example. Look at, look at 612. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Major decisions. When was the last time we did this? Major conflicts in the church, major problems. When was the last time we said, I'll fight this, and I know just where to do it? On my knees, alone, prayer closet. We'll win this battle. You see, what you've got to understand, man, nothing is impossible for God. And the more you trust in the arm of the flesh, the less you will see the power of God. And it's more than just being smart. Look at one of my favorite verses in the look at Luke 11 verse 1 It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished one of his disciples said to him Lord teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples Are you a great expositor Have young men gathered around you and say oh teach me to exposit the word of God like you do If so wonderful praise God has anyone ever come up to you and say, after hearing you pray, and say, teach me to pray like you pray? Missions is impossible, men. It is impossible. I am the weakest of men, but it is impossible even for the strongest of men. But nothing is impossible for him. And when we learn to tarry, when we dwell with him, when we sit with him, when we cry out to him, when we bother him, when we will not give him rest, I then is when you see the power of God. The power of God. But it wasn't just, it just, wasn't just prayer. It was the word. It was the word. Your weapon is the word. Look, look, go back to 1 Timothy Look at chapter 4, verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith. And then he goes on and he says, and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. You know, it's one of the most amazing things. My doctor tells me, he says, you've got to sleep more. 
I can't. I said, I don't have time to sleep. He goes, do you have time to die? Because if you don't start sleeping, you're going to die. That marathon runners and things will sleep 15 hours before they run. That, that Olympic lifters and power lifters, they eat six meals a day. Their meals are more important than their workout. Do you know that? How much time do you spend alone in the word with God for the nourishing of your soul? So that your soul has what we call in Spanish, sebo, has fat. Has fat. And strength. That even though your body's coming apart, there's something in you that you feel like you could twist iron into. Nourished so many. You know, Americans are some of the fattest people in the world. We're also the most malnourished. What would be the word? Good. Malnourished people in the word. In the world. We are. And I think sometimes that describes pastors and missionaries. Sometimes we don't feed at all. Sometimes we don't feed on the right things. And brothers, listen to me. I love books. I love books. I've read so much of the Puritans, so much of Spurgeon, so much of Calvin, but nothing. Those books don't touch the word. If you were in Spurgeon or Calvin or Edwards 24 hours a day, you would die weak as a dishrag. Because 24 hours in that court is not even worth five minutes in God's court, in the word, in the word, in the word. When I'm with missionaries... I want to know. I don't want to know how many people were baptized, how many people raised hands. I don't want them filling out little cards. I want to know how much were you in the word this month? Talk to me about your prayer life. How deep are you going? The word, the word, the word, not just reading, reading. Some of you may need to put all those books aside and get reacquainted with scripture. The word. Now, look look here. Look at this. Go back to Acts. Look at Acts 6. Verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Look at what it says. The word of God kept on spreading. Do you see that? Now go to 1224 and look there. But the word of God continued to grow and be multiplied. The word of God continued to grow and be multiplied. Now look at chapter 13 and look at verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Give that verse to some liberal when he says you give too much praise to the word, too much emphasis on the word. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many had been appointed to eternal life, believed, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. And then finally, 19, verse 20. Look at what it says. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. 
Brothers, you see what's going on here? We don't need all that other stuff. You don't need all the gimmicks and gizmos. You have everything you need. You have audience with the living God who hears and sees and delights in answering the prayers of his people. And you have the word of God that is powerful. You see that you need nothing else. You give me one man with bent and bloody knees, with a worn out Bible who preaches only thus saith the Lord and I'll take him over a thousand others. I love it because I'm a simple man. My brain doesn't work very well. I love this simplicity. I only have to do two things. Devote myself to prayer and the word of God. The studying of it for the nourishment of my soul and the preaching of it for the salvation of nations. And nothing is impossible. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing is impossible. Absolutely nothing. Now let's go to our text, 1 Timothy chapter (laughs) 3. I'm not going to be able to get through all of it, but some major points I want you to see. I want us to look at something. We're all about church planting and pastoring. And pastor, let me, let me tell you this. Keep this phrase in your mind for the rest of your life. It'll be very helpful to you. Flip-flop. The phrase flip-flop will be very helpful for you. Because when Christ comes back, everything is going to flip-flop. It is. Some of you have labored biblically, sincerely, prayerfully, And in your own eyes, you would say it doesn't really look like much. You don't worry about that. You keep being a steward who submits to the word of God. And on that day, you will be honored above kings and many well-known preachers. God doesn't judge things the way we judge them. The guy on the podium isn't always his favorite. Philosophical question, why would God plant his most beautiful rose in a forest through which no man or angel would ever walk. How could he get glory from that? He gets glory from it because he sees it every day and delights in it. He delights when he goes in and he knows your thoughts and he sees that they're pure. On the night watch when you can't sleep and you're thinking meditations in his word, he delights in you. Be very careful how we think. But let's look. I I want us to see something. The owner of the church. The owner of the church. Now, if you look here in our text in in 1 Timothy 3, he says in verse 15, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of of the truth. Now, Paul is doing something very Hebrew here. He's piling one term upon another, one designation, one phrase upon another. When a Jew wants to emphasize something, that's what he does. Holy, holy, holy. Paul 
tells us that this is the household of God, the church of the living God. He's trying to remind us all of something. This church is his. It is his. I want to, I'll just read a text for you quickly. Just listen. Acts 20, 28. Be on guard. Paul is speaking to the elders at the church of Ephesus. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which is purchased with his own blood. Look here. The best we are are stewards, overseers, stewards. The church belongs to God. And he gained that church for himself at a most, the most costly price. Do you understand me? Tread very lightly in the church. Lash yourself down to scripture, Stuart, because you were never commanded. It was never given to you to be clever, to adapt, to change what God has ordained. It has been given to you to obey the book, and that is it. We all need to be reminded of that. Now, I want you to look at something. He calls it the household of God. It's this Hebrew idea of Adon, the Hebrew idea of, of one being master, owner, head, sovereign of his own home. And in, in the church, that local church that you pastor or missionary, that local church that you're seeking to plant, never forget this, his house, his rules. His house, his rules. Not your rules, not what you think is right in your own eyes, not some clever man who wrote a clever book about how he was so clever and planting a church that grew to 5,000 in a day. No. There's only one book you need for church planting. It's called the Scriptures. It's his house. Now, I hope that I'm a hospitable person. You can ever make it up the logging road to my cabin. You're welcome. But when you come into my house, you must keep your place. I don't care who you are. It's my house. It's my rules. You don't rearrange things. You don't order things. You do not tell my wife what to do. You do not. It's my house. It's my house. It's God's house. It's God's house. I say that over and over because I hope that the Spirit of God will increase the fear of God in your heart. That as stewards, the church is God's precious thing. The church is God's precious thing. And as a steward, it is only ours to obey what is written. And be very careful how we tread. Now, I also want you to look at something. When it says that it is the household of God, it's not only speaking of God's sovereignty, but it is also speaking of God's intimacy and love for the church. That local church we're planting is his bride. Those people are his children. And we have been called to manage that. I want you to think about something. I want to give you a parable. A great king, powerful king, 
He's going to, he loves his wife above everything he has. He loves his wife, but he's going to go on a long journey. And so he calls you as a steward and he gives you specific directions on how you are to care for her. Everything written out carefully, clearly in a book. And then he goes on the journey. But after a while, what happens? You begin to notice that culture is changing. That, uh, well, people are not so much, well, they're kind of getting away from the king. Their loyalty seems to be waning. They seem to have other interests. And, and you figure out that the problem is pretty much that the, well, his bride is just not fit for today. She's all too modest, prudish even, Puritan. I mean, her clothes are nice, but they're so simple, elegant, but so plain. And you decide you've got to save the kingdom. And so you do a makeover on her. You take off her simple, beautiful, white garment. And you dress her in a way that when you parade her, you put makeup on her in a way that when you parade her before carnal, lustful men, they will be attracted to her and they will run back into the kingdom. What do you think that king will do to that steward on the day he returns? What do you think? My dear friend, don't worry so much for the atheist or the murderer or the prostitute on the day of judgment. Concern yourself for those who call themselves pastors, missionaries, who would change the bride to make her attractive to carnal men so as to somehow draw them into the kingdom. And I submit to you, that's what a great portion of evangelicalism is doing today. And it's sickening, and it will bring the judgment of God like nothing you have ever seen. My wife often traveled with me in all kinds of places in Peru, in the jungles, in the mountains. But when I knew I was going into a red zone where the terrorists were or a place where you really didn't know if you should trust the police, I didn't bring my wife. Never. She wanted to go, no. Here's the reason. They pull me off a bus. They slap me around, throw me against the bus, yell at me, scream at me, laugh at me, mock at me. Yeah, no problem. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt. Really don't care. But one of them lay one finger on my wife, and it's over. If I, being a simple man, redeemed but having still something of this unredeemed humanity in me, can love someone like that, then what kind of zeal does God have for his bride? What kind of zeal? What kind of love? I read the old men, the old churchmen, even the old Baptist and the old Presbyterian and the way they looked at the local church. You see, it's really easy to love this big universal thing because the people don't have names, but the local church, how tenderly, how biblically we need to care for her. We need to be like, um, there was a guy, Haggai. In the book of Esther, he wasn't trying to make Esther beautiful to the world, to the kingdom, to only one person, the king. He sought out. He knew well. He was a wise steward. What does the king desire? 
Well, that is the very thing that I'm going to do. Paul was very, very similar. Listen to what Paul said. He said, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Sometimes when someone tells me they're a music director, I'll always ask them this question. When you became a music director and you studied from Genesis to Revelation with regard to what kind of worship God wants, what did he show you? And most of them say, well, I never did that. (laughs) And I say, have you ever read Leviticus 10 where God killed two music directors? (laughs) Brothers, do you see what I'm talking about? Where is, I mean, these are holy things. Uzzah was going to give God some help and God showed his appreciation by striking him dead. Because he did not do according to what was written. And when we take care of the church, brothers, when we are to take care of the church, we cannot assume we must test everything with Scripture. Now he goes on, he calls the church the church of the living God. Whenever you hear living God in the Bible, a fight's on. A fight is on. Usually between God and the false gods of this world. Man, it's amazing. When he says living God, it's like all of a sudden he just sticks his chest out. He's ready to go. And I believe Paul uses this on purpose here. But before we go to Paul's meaning, I want you to just listen to Jeremiah 10.10. I want you to know to whom the church belongs. The church belongs to, according to Jeremiah, the true God, the living God, And the everlasting king, at his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. The the church you pastor or missionary, the church you're going you're planting. It belongs to this kind of God. Paul uses this expression, I believe, for this reason. In Ephesus where Timothy was ministering, there were temples everywhere, pagan temples everywhere. I mean, if you go to Ephesus today, you can still see the idolatry. It was incredible, frightful, even today, even though most of the buildings are destroyed. So I I believe here's what's going on. Paul is contrasting the church of the living God with these pagan temples. And he's basically saying this, these pagan temples... They are for gods that are nothing more than the inventions of man. These temples are for gods that were designed, created, invented by men. And therefore, what goes on in that temple, the service, the worship, and everything else can also be the invention of man. Man can do whatever he wants in there because man created the God in the first place. But when you talk about the living God, he is not the invention of men, brothers. He is God. And because we did not invent him, we also are not allowed to invent or determine what kind of worship and service is to be given to him. If you've read the Old Testament correctly, you know that that does not work well at all. Listen to Moses, or listen to Hebrews 8, 5. It says this, 
Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. See, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Moses was afraid. Now look what he says. That you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. See to it, he says. If God cared this much for a tabernacle, which was a type, which was a shadow, how much more does he care for your local church or the little church that you're planting somewhere outside this country? And how careful must you be as a pastor, as a missionary, to hold on to sola scriptura? Now, I want to go on quickly. I want us to look for a moment at the character of the church. He calls it the pillar in support of the truth. Listen to what one of my favorite guys, get all his commentaries. He's one of my favorite, D. Edmund Hebert. He says this, This phrase, pillar in support of the truth, reminds us that the church holds up and supports the truth before the world and maintains the truth in opposition to all attacks upon it. If the church crumbles under the influence of the world, if the church does not proclaim truth, it will not be proclaimed. Calvin said this, she is called the pillar of truth because the office of administering doctrine which God hath placed in her hands is the only instrument of preserving the truth that it may not perish from the remembrance of men. God is immutable. His truth is absolute and immutable. And the church has to stand before everyone, regardless of the culture, regardless of the people, regardless of the tribe, regardless of the nation. The church has to stand before people with a message that is equally immutable. The word of the living God. So many missionaries running around trying to be culturally sensitive when they ought to be trying to be biblically accurate. And that is the great difference, my dear friend, the great difference between the Reformation and Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism went to the nations, discovered what they were like, and adapted to them. The preaching of the Reformation came with the absolute immutable truth of God and changed the culture. I have worked and do work in all kinds of cultures. I appreciate them. I work a lot with the Chinese. I love the Chinese culture. I work with Africa, Latin America. But they all have to bow to the absolute truth revealed in the Scriptures. Sometimes people say, you're pressing the West upon the world. And I go, oh, I'd never do that. And they go, what do you mean? Well, I said, before the gospel got to my people in Europe, we were all running around naked, painting ourselves blue and eating one another. I would never press that upon a people. (laughs) It was the gospel of Jesus Christ that changed Europe. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that changed cultures. And the more a culture conforms not to the West, 
Not to some ideas we have that are born out of bad exposition. No, but the more cultures conform to Scripture, the more life and joy there is. Now, let's get to the last part here. Verse, I think that verse 14 and 15 are so overlooked And yet I believe that in this is found one of the most important truths in all of Scripture and in all of ministry. Really, I do. Listen to what he says. Verse 14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Stuart, how can you know how to conduct yourself in the household of God? How can you know that what you're doing as a missionary or a pastor, how can you know that what you're doing is the will of God, bringing the blessing of God and not the opposition of God, only if you are doing what is written? What is written. Do you not realize I am 55. If I live two more years, I will have outlived my father. I will stand before God. By grace, a wide entrance will be given to me. And yet at the same time, in a way that I cannot harmonize, I will stand before God and a portion, at least a portion of my life will burn before my very eyes. If, if you have any sense of eternity that you've gained in prayer and reading the word, what an amazing thought. It would be enough to drive a man crazy if he didn't have a map, if he didn't have some instruction, if he, if he couldn't hold on to some certainty about what he was supposed to do. But the fact of the matter is, we do have that map, that certainty, that book. It is called the Scriptures. Men, that you might increase in the fear of God in your ministries and lash yourself down to Scripture, not only for the sake of the church, but for the sake of your own soul. For the sake of your own soul. How dare you, Stuart? How dare you conduct yourself with my bride in a way that was totally inappropriate? Well, I didn't know it was inappropriate. It's because you never tarried in my word. You never studied it like your life depended on it. Now you know that your life did depend upon it. Do you think I'm trying to scare you? I wish you would be scared. Because this... This is weighty. This is, this is a deep thing. Look, look what Paul tells Timothy just in chapter 4, down in verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Preserve in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Both for yourself and for those who hear you. Do you see that? If not the love 
of Revelation. At least the fear of God ought to drive us to study Scripture until we have biblical certainty that we are handling his bride, we are doing his mission work in a way that is pleasing to him. Now, I, I want to finish with one last thing. I want to talk about sola scriptura and the Reformation. The foundation stone of the Reformation was not a Calvinistic soteriology. It was not. What was? Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura. And it was from the study of Scripture that a sovereign grace soteriology came forth. But the foundation of everything was returning to the book. Returning to the book. We found a book in the temple. Returning to the book. Now, why do I bring that up? This, uh, sola Scriptura and this idea of sovereign grace or Calvinistic soteriology. It's for this reason. Most people are introduced to the Reformation by first coming to the doctrines of grace. They discover the doctrines of grace. They start discovering, you know, other preachers, you know, maybe Martin Lloyd-Jones or Spurgeon. Then they start working their way back and they find the Puritans. Then they find the Reformers. And, and because they've adopted or accepted or believe the doctrine of sovereign grace, they believe they're Reformed. But that's not true. If that's the only thing you hold on to, then you're not a child. You're not even a cousin or a nephew of the Reformation. I see this everywhere, especially among the young guys. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Calvinist. I'm this. I'm that. But then I look at the way you're doing church. Look at the way you're doing family. Look at the way you live. Look at the things you watch. Look at all this. And I go, no, you don't understand the Reformation. The Reformation was this. It was about studying the Word of God because it is life and taking everything the Word of God gives us and applying it to every aspect of life and faith and ministry. Do you see that? It is so very important. So very important. And I'll tell you, the area that gets looked over the most, the area that gets looked over the most by sovereign grace God, it's ecclesiology. It's not you believe in the doctrines of grace, now you do church any way you want. The same scripture that gave you these precious doctrines of salvation ought to lead every aspect of your church's life and your family and everything. Now, let me end by asking you just a few questions. And, and I don't really like using the word reformed. I, I love the reformers, but I prefer to use the word just biblical. <laughs> biblical. I think they would get kind of angry if they knew how many times we use the word reform. They're going, what are you guys talking about? We were just trying to get back to Scripture. <laughs> are we biblical in the gospel that we preach? Is the content biblical? The nature of God? 
the nature and fall of man, the great dilemma, how can God be just and the justifier of the wicked? The cross, the resurrection, are we preaching those things carefully? Our invitation to sinners. I go in, I see guys and they talk all this reformation talk and sovereign grace talk and I go in their libraries and they got all the right books and everything, but the way they deal with a sinner has nothing to do with scripture. It's like they abandon all the scripture and fall back into some methodology in dealing with souls. Are we reformed? Are we biblical in the way we deal with souls? The gospel we preach, is it a side note or is it central to everything in the church? Another question, does the gospel we preach lead to true piety or lawlessness like so many are trying to put forth today? Does it lead you, the, go- the gospel you preach, does it lead your people to love the full counsel of God, all the scripture, everything that is written? Our personal devotion, is it reformed? Is it biblical? The diligence of Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, Ryle, Owen, in their studies, would be, we be able to converse with them regarding such diligence, our, our, our devotional life. You may read Brainerd and Robert Murray McShane, but do you live them, that kind of prayer life? Now, of course, they were exceptional, but they need to be more than just books read. Do we pray like the Reformers and the Puritans? You know, Bethany Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones' wife, said, you can't understand my husband as an evangelist unless you first understand him as a man of prayer. Our character, our character. You know the thing I would describe missionaries and, and pastors? Busy, 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 busy. Let me fill you in on something. God doesn't need you, but he does desire that you obey him. This is not about whoever's busiest wins. This is about obedience to what is written. Are you investing in your character? You know, maybe the elders laid their hands on you because you did at that time have those qualifications. Have you fallen from those qualifications because you've neglected the word? Brother, you're only as spiritual as your devotional time today. Let's say that this is a busy week and I'm really sick. So I I say yesterday, I go to my friends and go, guys, give me like a 10-hour period of time. Why, what are you going to do, Brother Paul? I'm going to eat for 10 hours so that I won't have to eat the rest of the week. Well, I'm going to get sick, but the next day I'm going to be hungry again. And, and, And pastors, missionaries, you must understand this. Every day at his doorstep, every day, in his word. We're no good. We're no good to anyone unless we are with him, nourished with him, empowered by him. Are you working on your character? Are you seeking to be more like Christ? Because we're not just to be proclaimers, we're to be examples. Our homes. Missionary, your home. Pastor, your home. 
Are you reformed in your home? I have heard that uh, Philip and Matthew Henry, if you did not properly catechize your children, you'd be publicly disciplined in their church. Would you be put out? And don't ever come to me and say, you've got so much ministry responsibility, you can't take care of your family because according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, you are no longer in the ministry. If you do not manage your own household well, you are no longer qualified for the ministry. And let me share with you something. Whenever you say that you've got so much to do in the ministry that you must sacrifice your family, do you know what you're doing? You're blaspheming God. How are you blaspheming God? You are saying that Romans 12:2 is not true, where it says that the will of God is perfect. It's complete. Instead of that, instead of affirming that truth, what you're saying is this. The will of God is not complete. In order to do the will of God in the ministry, I have to disobey the will of God in my family. And that's not true. That is not true. Missionaries especially, look, if you're lazy, you need a kick in the pants. That's for sure. But I know most men... And a lot of the men that I visited for TMAI and things, they work and they work. Brother, nobody's chasing you. Do your work. But more than thinking about work, just follow line by line what is in the Scriptures. Do what God sets before you in His Word. Start with the priorities. Work your way down. And at the end, just go to sleep if you can. Take care of your family. According to the scriptures, when you got married, did you read through the scriptures to determine what a husband was supposed to be? When you had that first child with fear and trembling, did you read through the scriptures, marking down, marking down, writing, trying to determine how am I supposed to raise this kid according to what is written? In our churches... Our leadership, our organization, our ministry strategy, all of it must come forth from Scripture. That doesn't mean that we study Scripture and forget about church history. No. We always do our theology, interpret Scripture in the context of the history of the church, of those who have had a high view of Scripture. So when I do study the Scripture to determine how a church should be handled I'm going to go back into church history and ask, has anyone else seen this? Because if they haven't, I'm probably wrong. But I must diligently study the scriptures to determine how should church be. Let me give you an example. One example. I know I'm going too long, but I'm already in trouble. Uh, I know I'm going too long, but let me give you an example. Now, I am all for... Sunday school and things like that, okay? So don't spread the rumor I'm not. I, I like young people and, you know, okay? Because I know how stories get exaggerated. Let's say I'm the new pastor in your church, and I come there, and I say, just real quick, I said, men, um, I have a question. Um, how many of you are purposefully, intentionally, strategically... Uh, washing your wives in the gospel, prayer, and um, diligently, strategically, intentionally 
discipling your children. If I went into most churches, the men would kind of go like this. Maybe they'd elbow each other, even laugh a little. I'm doing that. Okay, as the new pastor, all women's groups are now canceled. The youth group is canceled. The children's church is canceled. And all Sunday school is canceled indefinitely. What are the men going to do now? They're going to stand up screaming and say, crucify him. Aren't they? They're going to spread it all throughout town. This man hates women, hates children, hates Sunday school. He's against children being taught. Everything. They are literally going to crucify me. But right before they nail me to a tree, do you know what I'm going to tell them? You hypocrites. You annul the commandments of God with your traditions. Now, again, I am all for the church getting involved in the training of children, women, youth, everything. My point is this. It was never commanded in Scripture, but it was commanded for you, sir, to take care of that woman God gave you and to disciple those children that God gave you. That was commanded, and I can take you from the Old Testament to the New Testament and prove it. We will say so often, we're a biblical church, we're a biblical church, when in fact what we're doing is we're helping the men be disobedient to God's commands. Now, again, I want your children training and everything to be far better than ever. I'm just saying, men, be careful when you say, yeah, I'm biblical. Our church is biblical. You may actually be helping people disobey God. Now, I could go on with a hundred other examples, and I just gave that one because, well, I want you to see, not that I have some axe to grind. I don't about children's ministries. I'm wonderful. I'm just trying to show you that so easily we can say, oh, yeah, we're biblical. We're right there. When actually we haven't really looked at every aspect of our life and ministry and see if it conforms to Scripture. Now, it is a lifelong journey. That's the reason for the phrase semper reformando. It's a lifelong journey. No one's there. Paul in Philippians said he had not yet got there. But the one thing he did is the one thing we should do, and that is strive for it. Brothers, I I feel so, I have said so little. I, I just want you to see so much that the church belongs to God, that it's to be cared for according to this book, that if you can't Draw it. I'm going to sound like the regulative principle now. If you cannot draw what you're doing from a specific command or a specific example or something that can be rationally deduced from the Scriptures, you're moving into Pandora's box and you open that thing, it's going to bring forth a world of hurt. Lash yourself down to Scripture. If you're a missionary, lash yourself down to Scripture and prayer. Scripture and prayer. Scripture and prayer. Well, God bless you. God bless you.